0: All right. Hi, everybody. We're going to get started. We have quite a bit to get through today. Obviously, it's a very full board. Um, Basically, today is going to be a high-level overview of a subject, procedural fairness, that we've got the next four lectures on. We're not going to land every single point fully today. What I'm hoping to do is to provide, you know, the really high-level forest, the map of all the concepts that we're going to be touching on. So when we delve more deeply into them, they fit within a cohesive framework find this is a really hard area to not get sucked into the weeds on. Um, I frankly, I like our chapter that we have today. A lot of the ideas are quite important. I think that the chapter gets a little too far into the weeds to really provide a useful overview. So that's what I'm hoping to provide today. So we're going to try to stay high level. Um, and if you don't feel like every concept is fully fleshed out, you know, that's on purpose. We're coming back to everything on the board throughout the next three lectures. Um, Before we do that, I want to just quickly touch base on the syllabus. I hope everybody saw that the updated syllabus, you know, is now online. And there's a pretty dramatic reshaping of the second half of the course. And it's a reshaping that's going to lead to a really heavy next 10 classes or so. However, it's going to leave a lot of space at the end to catch up and review. So what I decided to do was to move the standard of review, um, I'll talk more about it, but the substantive review, the review of the substance of a decision up to the next topic we talk about. And really, if you want to think about the most important components of this course, procedural fairness and substantive review are probably one and two, you know, no particular order. And so we're going to get right into that right after procedural fairness that is broken up by the reading week, which is, I think, fortunately time. So right in the middle of our substantive review time, you'll have an opportunity to catch up if things have been falling behind a little bit. We're then going to go right into the question of the intersection of admin law and the charter, which not on the same level of substantive review and procedural fairness is still really right up there. Um, And then we're going to go into the intersection of Aboriginal law and the Charter, or sorry, Aboriginal law and administrative law. Also really important, um, but also an area where we are going to be looking at a lot of the concepts we've already learned about and seeing the nuance, the tweak in the Aboriginal law context. So it starts to become also a bit of a review as opposed to, you know, being all new material. Then we're going to get a couple stray straight concepts, delegation and section 96 courts. I used to have those as separate lectures, but I've combined them and I've cut the reading in half for that. I think that we can land what you need to know from those concepts in the lecture with a little bit of sub, a little bit of a reading to supplement that. Uh, then we're going to go into, um, I should say, March 22nd. We'll have a, a guest lecture. It's actually going to be my wife um, is going to come give the lecture. She wrote the paper that's assigned for that day, and I think her co-author is also going to come too, and this is getting back into the intersection of um, charter rights and administrative law. And these two have done some of the best forward thinking on this subject. And it's a subject inevitably that people have um, opinions on, people find difficult. I think it's an area of the law that's still unsatisfactorily resolved to a lot of people's eyes. So we'll get to have a chance to have you you know, learn from and really maybe discuss with two of the experts in the area some of the problems that may linger in your mind after our touching on that. Um, we're then going to end with the um, admin law in practice, which is lighter, to be honest, and it's, um, you know, what is it like to practice administrative law? And also, procedurally, what does it look like to take a, a, a case through the tribunal process up through judicial review? Um, some of these more practical things will come through. Hoping to get um, guest lectures for one of those two days, and then we'll have two classes of review where we'll go through the entire course. So that's how the syllabus is lined up. I think it—you have to see the light at the end of the tunnel, as it were—that the end is going to be light on the readings. The last four weeks will be really, or the last four classes, I should say, very light on readings. But that does mean it's it's heavy until then. So that's um, the way it's structured. Any questions on the syllabus? Okay, then let's get right into it. Um, I want to go through quite a few topics. And as I said at the outset, provide an overview. And then we're going to have a lot of chance to delve more deeply into these ideas as we go through another chapter, a number of cases, and um, through our discussions. So the first thing that I want to just reiterate is that sometimes people can get a little bit lost Uh, in the intersection between procedural fairness and our broad high-level structure of the judiciary providing oversight of the executive. Sometimes it isn't clear how procedural fairness fits into this structure and you want to recall that it really comes down to an assumption that the courts are going to assume the legislature never intended to let the executive have an unfair process. So if there's an unfair process that's been demonstrated, then the court says, well, I don't think you were entitled to make this order in an unfair process. You weren't entitled to do it. It was outside your jurisdiction. So therefore you've stepped outside your jurisdiction executive, and ordinarily we're gonna have to set that aside. We'll get back to remedies in a few seconds. So just to keep that really high level thing in your mind at the outset is probably helpful to recall even though we're getting into the weeds on fairness we're still within this high level conceptual bubble of the judiciary making sure the executive stays within its power and the basis for that is this quite reasonable assumption that parliament didn't intend to authorize you to affect someone's rights through an unfair process. Now what is an unfair process this gets very very tricky. But that's the, what are we doing highest level? Um, The next thing I want to talk about is really important to be clear on at the outset. And I actually have not been clear on this in previous years that I've taught this class. And I've had questions on this down the line where I see, oh, you're still not totally clear on the distinction between procedural review and substantive review, and that's obviously on me. So I want to be clear at the outset this time as to what that distinction is, what we're talking about, when I say procedural fairness versus what we're talking about, when I say substantive review or talk about the standard of review. These questions um, are distinct. I don't like that I use the phrase standard of review to talk about substantive review. Um, Just, it's a bit confusing because there is a standard of review that gets applied to procedural questions also, but this is how a lot of people talk about it, standard of review analysis about the substance. Don't get confused by that, we'll come back to that. But what you really want to think about is there are two conceptually distinct ideas that you can bring to bear when criticizing an administrative decision. The first is that you had an unfair process. How you got to your decision was itself unfair. The second concept is that you came to an unreasonable or incorrect decision on the substance. You were asked to apply law to facts, exercise a discretion in the face of facts, and you failed to do so in a reasonable or correct manner, depending on the standard that you're applying to review that. So, how did you get there versus what did you actually decide? The how did you get there is procedure, that what did you actually decide is substance. So just to be totally clear at the outset, we are, for the next four classes, focusing on the how. So that leads into the next topic, which I think is quite well discussed in your book. Um, And I think that this is an issue that you might not get from just reading the cases. Uh, this sort of a discussion of the concept of the inherent value of fairness. One of the reasons I like balancing the textbook with the cases in this class to give you both sides of the administrative law picture. And what they're talking about with this inherent value of fairness is this idea, which I think ties back into procedure versus substance, that. If there's been an unfair process, if there's been an unfair process, ordinarily, the court should be concerned with that and provide a remedy, even if the court says, well, looking at the substance, I kind of think that this is correct, what happened, or at least this is reasonable. And that's because a fair process is not simply a means to an end. It's not just a means to a reasonable or correct outcome. It's also an end in and of itself. And the book has a nice discussion of this. And I think that there's a few other concepts that you can take out of this inherent value of fairness. That there's a attitude of respect for the rule of law that's furthered by recognizing fairness as an end in and of itself. A culture of justification, transparency, and openness is furthered by ensuring that tribunals operate in a fair way and don't just get to defensible decisions. There's a, um, I think, a truism that is, uh, you've probably heard before, but I'd repeat it, about who is the most important person in the courtroom, or you could extend that to the the tribunal. And ultimately, the most important person is the losing party. If you have a system where the losing party feels, and they're not going to like the outcome, but I lost, I was heard, and I understand why I lost, even if I don't agree with it, that's conducive to a rule of law Uh, That's conducive to a culture that's supportive of the rule of law. It's also conducive to efficiencies in the system because such a person is less likely to appeal or judicially review a decision if they can reasonably understand the basis upon which they weren't successful. So good, I mean, and and the truth is, if I get a judgment, um, you know, argue in court, I get reasons for judgment. If I win, I honestly barely even read them. I, don't, I often don't read them at all. I flip to the last page or hopefully put in the first paragraph, hey, I won, great, you know, uh, I can tell the client. If I lose, oh, you better believe I'm scouring those judgments for errors, right? If you win a case, your day is clear. If you lose a case, you have a lot of work to do. And so the reasons really are written to justify to the unsuccessful party why they were unsuccessful. So promoting a feeling of fairness, promoting a feeling that you were heard, is I would say a necessary precondition to a justice system that people can broadly be satisfied with. And that requires seeing fairness as an end in and of itself. And I think you can do a bit of a thought experiment as to what would people be happier with? A justice system that got the substantive answer right all the time, but provided no explanation for how it got there and no opportunity for anybody to participate in the process. Just sort of magically knew the right answer, but didn't tell you why. Or a justice system that got the answer right nearly all the time but allowed you to participate and gave you transparency as to the reasons that things were being done. And I think nearly everybody would be happier with the latter. So I think these ideas are just getting at this concept the book explains nicely of the inherent value of fairness. Um, The inherent value of fairness I'm going to go slightly out of order. I should have put remedies first, and I'll talk about triggering a duty. So we'll go to remedies. The inherent value of fairness, therefore, resonates in this idea that if I can show something's procedurally unfair, ordinarily I should expect a remedy regardless of whether I can also convince the court that the substance of the decision was wrong. I may have a court that says, I'm pretty sure the residential tenancy branch was right to uphold your eviction, but there was a huge flaw in the process that got there. And the ordinary course is the court will not then say, well, it'd be pointless to send it back. We're going to uphold the eviction because I think it's reasonable anyways. Well, to to do so would be to undermine the inherent value of fairness, for one, right? You'd be um, giving no weight or remedy to the fact that an unfair process happened. You'd, in essence, be judicially sanctioning it. There's also another conceptual idea as to why that's not a proper judicial response to say, well, it probably would have gone the same way anyways. And that's, of course, coming back to our diagram The legislature gave that decision to the executive and asked them to do it in a fair way. They failed in that responsibility. That doesn't mean that the substance of the decision should therefore be grabbed by the judiciary to decide themselves. They were never asked to decide the substance of the decision. They were only asked to review the exercise of powers by the executive body. So again, the judiciary being restrained and saying something unfair happened, I'm granting a remedy, I'm sending it back, even if I'm kind of convinced that the tribunal is going to find the same way, uh, is a rule that serves several purposes. And it certainly is the default. Now I'm going to pause on, again, whenever I talk about remedies apart from setting aside a decision and sending it back, I want you to remember that I'm very much in the exception to the rule and that don't give this too much weight in your broad framing and conception, because you know, this is the sort of thing that um, is out of the ordinary course. But it may be the case that there is some other basis to ask the court to invoke its discretion to not grant a remedy on judicial review. And remember we talked about that, that all remedies on judicial review are discretionary because of their roots in equity And there is these ideas such as delay and a lack of clean hands that could disentitle you to a remedy and if you can make the argument that there's been delay or there's been some bad conduct and pair it with an argument that this decision is inevitable in any event then you're less likely to to see something set aside and remitted over maybe a relatively minor procedural error that is a big caveat though to the ordinary rule If you can show something's unfair, regardless of whether the decision otherwise looks substantively okay, you can expect it to be sent back for redetermination. Yeah? Just practically speaking, if you have a client, like, if you know that there was one, there was like a small procedural error, they'll send it back, do it correctly, and everything else is going to stay the same that you're very highly likely going to get the same result. Like, why would it be worth doing that? That's literally the next thing I was going to talk about. That is exactly the point. I'm so glad that your mind's there. And this is so important for your practice to understand exactly that point, that you can get the most hollow and empty victories when you're sort of enticed by a procedurally unfair process to challenge something when you really don't have a good substantive complaint with the decision, you really want to have your client explain to you how, if I got the right process, let's say I could get better evidence before the tribunal. I could respond to an argument or evidence I didn't know was coming at the time. I could be represented by counsel. There's other things that might really change things, If you can't explain that, that how there'd be a a difference and also the client can't, it's not the kind of thing where um, just there's a good chance of a new decision-maker being assigned because it's a high volume tribunal. They may just see things differently. You really have to prepare your client for the chance that you win the judicial review. You don't get enough costs to cover your attorney fees get sent back and you get the same outcome. So you want to not encourage your client, unless they you know, desire to just fix what they see as an unfair process systemically, don't pursue procedural judicial reviews unless there's a real path to a different substantive outcome because you're just gonna waste your time. It's a really important point, and it's a really frustrating point for a lot of clients when you explain this to them, that, you know, unfairness could lead to the exact same outcome with a whole lot of uh, effort and money spent by you in the middle. It's a great question, though. Any other questions? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, triggering a duty. So, but before I do so, it's probably better just to take, take one step back and just think about what are the sorts of things that I'm talking about here when I talk about a duty of fairness. What are the sort of procedural rights or opportunities that I'm concerned with? Because where, the book does a good job on this. What will be fair in different circumstances is really variable. In some cases, you're going to get procedure that's just about like a court maybe even with some protections that go above and beyond what a court would offer. In other circumstances, you're going to get really minimal procedural rights. It's a variable, uh, a highly variable uh, set of different options that may be um, appropriate in the circumstances. And I'm going to come back to this, but I have a few of them on the board. I'm just going to go through the one by one at the highest level, we'll come back to it so you get a sense as to what kind of things I'm talking about. Uh, The bare minimum sort of procedural right would be the right to notice, to know there's a hearing happening at all. If you have a right to procedural fairness, then you have a right to notice. We'll talk about triggering a duty in a second, but if you can get to a point where you say, yes, there's a duty, and no, there wasn't notice, you clearly have a procedural fairness problem. Then you may get noticed, then you may get a right to submit written submissions, to write something into the tribunal that they'll read and consider as they, as they may, sort of another minimal procedural right. Then you might get some more, um, uh, so some broader rights. You might sort of get a right to disclosure of documents. Well, these are the things that we're going to be relying upon. You might get a right to oral submissions. You might get a right to cross-examine witnesses. And here's where we're getting to a place where you might even get beyond what you could possibly get in court. You might get a right to review and comment upon a draft decision, which is a you know pretty remarkable right that you wouldn't ordinarily see in court. So I just wanted to say that, just so we know kind of what sort of things we're talking about when I talk about triggering a duty and these duties of fairness, uh, it's hard not to jump around because there's a lot of concepts to introduce, but I just wanted to touch on that. We'll come back to it in a second when I talk about Audi alter term So, with some broad idea of what the procedural rights that we might be asking for are, the preliminary question you have to ask yourself and ask your client is whether the tribunal owed any duty to give you a fair process. Because the tribunal doesn't owe a duty to just everybody to give them a procedurally fair opportunity to be heard. And I mean, you can imagine this to be um, kind of obvious when you think about some of the tribunals we spend a lot of time on. So let's say the residential tenancy branch is considering an eviction between a landlord and a tenant. Well, they have no obligation to provide a fair process to a neighbour who might want to support or oppose the eviction because they like or don't like that person. They have no obligation to um, just allow just anybody to come in and make submissions or have notice of the hearing. So rather, there is a test that sets out a class of people who have a duty of fairness that is triggered. And that test is in the case of Cardinal and Kent Institution. I, know I have it in my notes. Um, yeah, so the, the, I just to make sure I want to get the language exactly right. So this is the test for who owes a duty of procedural fairness. It's in your chapter, a little bit towards the end this comes up. I think it makes sense to talk about it at the outset. It's also in these notes, Cardinal and Kent. And the uh, Supreme Court of Canada says, who owes a duty of fairness? Well, it's every public authority making an administrative decision which is not of a legislative nature and which affects the rights, privileges or interests of an individual. So there's sort of two components to this. The first half of it thinks about the decision maker and the second half thinks about the person who's claiming a procedural right. So the decision maker must be a public authority. And you could think of this back into the Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses case. It's just limiting this right to actual executive actors. And then they have to be making a decision that is not of a legislative nature. And this is the idea that sometimes the executive acts in a way that's really akin to a legislature. And when you make a legislative decision, The idea is your obligation is not to anybody in particular, but to everybody, to good governance. So they exclude procedural fairness rights from legislative decisions. And where you really, really, really see this is in the context of municipal law. Because cities are really just administrative bodies. They're created by the legislature through provincial law. When they exercise their bylaw-making powers, you know, broadly their obligation is to the public as a whole, not to individual people. There's an exception to this that the book notes if a bylaw targets one individual person as opposed to being generally applicable. You know, that's pretty in the weeds for our current considerations. But you just want to think you know, as the starting point in your examination, or sorry, on your exam, I would say, but in your uh, consideration of a client, uh, the first thing you have to think is, does this person even have a duty of procedural fairness that's triggered? Are they dealing with a public authority? You know, it's not a congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. Is there a decision that's not legislative in nature? If yes, and if yes, okay, this is the kind of body that could owe a duty of procedural fairness. Now, is it owed to my client? Does it affect their rights, privileges, or interests? If so, a duty of fairness is owed. And then you get into the question of the content of that duty, which is, the Baker case we'll talk about next class and we might touch on it at the end of today. But that's the starting point. Is there a duty owed? Public authority, not legislative, rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. Just something to have in mind, an important, you know, test on the way towards understanding this duty. Any questions? Okay. Um, I'm going to get into... Um, some of the rights at a high level a little bit more um, specifically not as specific as we will get into them but to introduce the concepts before i do that though i want to just pause on a um, an interesting feature of the law around procedural fairness as compared to the law around substance and I, i might have touched on this at the outset if i was better organized but i think it's important to talk about right now anyways and that is this idea that the law on procedural fairness is remarkably stable. The leading case is Baker, and the Baker's been the leading case since it came down in, I, I don't know, 97 or something like that. It's been a long time. There's been no sea change in procedural fairness law compare that to substantive review law and there has been real wild swings left and right on how much deference to give tribunals and you know hopefully you've maybe even picked up on the news how much attention um, that U.S. Supreme Court case we were talking about is getting on the question of how much deference to give tribunals. It is a hot button issue that we talked about why can you know, trigger some um, political alignment, it can can affect your view on this, Um, and it can really get people fired up if they think that these tribunals are essential to access to justice and being undermined, or, you know, contrary to the rule of law and undermining the constitutional structure, you can feel strongly in both ways and be very reasonable on both sides. Fairness doesn't really elicit the same uh, division and we all kind of agree that we'd like things to be fair, the question of what constituted an unfair process in any given circumstance is up for, for a reasonable debate. And as we'll see, a consequence of that is it is very hard to predict exactly what procedural rights a court will necessarily find you entitled to because there's a lot of factors that go into this. But the basic concept that I want a fair process and the basic proposition that what is fair in different circumstances will be contextual, and therefore there'll be some variability here. is not hardly fought, is not very hard fought. Uh, people seem to agree on those basic concepts, and then the you know the fights are in the details. So that's just a a way of thinking of um, these two concepts we're going to talk about, and just by way of explanation as to why you see stability in one, conflict in the other. But I want to just make a point that. Um, To make clear that that there's, we shouldn't mask the fact that there are real tensions in this procedural fairness context. Um, Despite the fact there isn't the, the big political fights around this, there is values and tensions inherent in how you design tribunals and what level of fairness you provide to people who come before your tribunals so what i'm getting at here is the more procedural rights you provide the longer a tribunal process is going to take and the more expensive a tribunal is going to be to run and the more expensive it likely is going to be either in terms of having to pay someone to appear before the tribunal or just in the time value of money, of people having to set aside a lot of their life to deal with the tribunal decision. So there is a cost consequence to providing more procedural rights, both to the state and the individual. So when you see arguments against extending a procedural right to somebody, you know, it may not be just a stingy tribunal. It may not be just a, an unfair um, process that's being sort of propped up and defended. There may be really good reasons why extending certain procedural rights in some circumstances would undermine the broader work of that tribunal. So I I know I come back to this example all the time, but it just, for me, is one that's easy to conceptualize. As a, Stand in for a generic tribunal. But if you think about the residential tenancy branch, you know, the process that they have there is really summary. You have to challenge your eviction within, it's like 15 days or something really, don't quote me on that, but very quick after it's been issued. It's on the eviction notice, it's on number of days. Then you have a short window to file your argument then the landlord has a short window to file their argument. You usually get it about seven days before the hearing. And I should say, when I mean argument, I mean their sort of highest level of response and the evidence they're going to rely on. There's no obligation to provide a written argument in advance or anything like that. Then you have a hearing, and the hearing is hard capped for an hour. There is some discretion to go beyond the hour, but it's really rarely used. The first 20 minutes of that are usually settlement discussions that might not go anywhere. So then you have 40 minutes to discuss this eviction, and people are ordinarily not represented, and by the time they get through, you know, the first page of their notes, their 20 minutes are up, and they don't even get to the second half of their argument. So you may imagine a legislature or a court even coming in and saying, oh my goodness, I can't imagine a more fundamentally important thing than not being unjustly evicted from your home. I mean, your kids ripped out of school, having to move, potentially becoming homeless. Um, This is an area we need to provide the highest level of procedural protections. So, you know, let's give both sides um, three months to prepare their submissions. Let's require full discovery of all relevant documents. Let's Let's require written arguments be exchanged well in advance of the hearing let's have cross examination let's have a day long hearing let's do it in person so i can assess credibility well all that sounds really nice but this process that is efficient right now gets slowed down and you may have a circumstance where there's something fundamentally unfair that is ongoing and happening you could have a landlord who has a tenant who's not paying rent and is trashing the place and you would be stuck with that person for, you know, potentially a year while this process dragged on. You may have a landlord who is entering your suite without permission, you know, as much of a violation of privacy as you conceive of almost. And they might keep doing that before you can get the RTB to declare that they have to change the locks and there's powers like that that the RTB has. So the tension is real. You want every case to be decided with the best record and the best submissions possible but if you go too far in providing protections for every single case to be you know as fully argued as conceivably possible the entire system unless it gets way more funding and things like that you know could um could be undermined so i want to raise these high level thoughts before we get a little bit more specific into some of the ideas but i want you to frame the The tensions around procedural fairness, as you know, not quite the same as the tensions around substantive review, but still there, and there still is a cost to swinging too far on either side of the procedural spectrum. Any questions on that? Okay, um, I'm gonna keep moving then, just. To get through this massive board, um, so I want to talk a little bit about. In essence, there's four components to fairness, and traditionally, the two components of a fairer process were these two Latin maxims: "Audi alteram partem" and "Nemo judex in sua causa." And there's even some old statements of law saying all procedural fairness can be reduced to these two maxims that's not true anymore because um, of concerns around reasons and delay so i want to touch on those things quickly uh, we will come back to both those topics and then i'm going to get into the latin maxims which really are where a lot of the fight lands especially audi ultra impartum so I want to talk a little bit about reasons. And reasons, of course, is a decision-maker explaining the um, basis for the decision that they've made. Reasons are an area that has a significant overlap between substance and procedure. Especially post Vavilov we'll see the focus of substantive review is not just on the outcome, you know, you're evicted, you're not evicted, but also on the reasoning process that got you there. And a decision that is found to have a flawed reasoning process can be struck down on judicial review. That's just a preview of Avalov. Don't worry too much about that. So there is a substantive component to reasons. It's how we understand if the substance of your decision was reasonable or correct or can stand. But there's also a procedural component to reasons. And really, this comes down to the question of, does the decision maker have to give you reasons or not? That can be a, um, a procedural right that you can claim, but the court won't always agree it's necessary. There are some administrative decisions that are so rote and routine that they won't impose a duty on somebody to write written reasons every single time they make one of these decisions. You may be allowed to just say, granted, denied, granted, denied. You could imagine, for example, if I wanted a recreational fishing permit to go and fish with my friends. And let's say I I hand in a really flawed piece of paperwork. I don't have my driver's license with me. And the decision maker just says, nope, you can't have one. Can I demand written reasons for why I didn't get my recreational fishing permit? You know, probably not. There are some decisions that just aren't going to trigger a duty of reasons at all. We're going to see in the Baker case, though, This is where the court recognizes there can be a procedural duty to provide reasons and provides a good overview of the the benefit of a reasoning process. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because we're going to get back to this in Baker. But in essence, just the process of making you go through a reasoning analysis can lead to better decisions. I think we all intuitively understand that, that If you just respond, you may not even know to yourself what's motivating your response, but having to go through a reasoning process can lead to more sound decision-making. So I think I'm going to not go too far into this duty because, again, it arises in Baker. It's actually a significant part of the reading for Friday is talking about the duty to provide reasons. But I want you to conceptualize it as one of the four key procedural rights you could ask for. And it is distinct in in um, in its in its essence from delay, audi altera partem, and nemo judic. So it really is its own category. And again, we're not talking about reviewing the substance of those reasons here. We're just saying, do I have a right to demand reasons from this decision maker? You know, yes or no. Any questions on that one? All right. The next uh, thing that I think is its own category is delay. Do I have a right to administrative justice within a particular time frame? Does it get to a point where there's so much delay that the administrative actor loses their jurisdiction because you weren't entitled to wait six years before making this decision. We're going to come back to this when we talk about the cases of Blenko and Abramitz. That's next week. So again, I'm not going to say too much about it. But the, you know, just a preview where that lands. The court says, yes, there can be such delay and the prejudice can be so obvious to the administration of justice, if we were to allow these sorts of decisions to be made after this amount of time, the tribunal loses its jurisdiction. And I'm I'm considering, uh, to be honest with you, I'm considering bringing such an argument against the Human Rights Tribunal right now because I've been waiting two years for a preliminary decision. And you should have seen the response I got when I asked about it, just like, you know how many other things we have to do? there um so delay we're not gonna we're not gonna go too far into delay right now but just on our big level conception uh it's a right i can demand i can say i have a right to get this decision made in a reasonable amount of time coming back Blanco and abramitz and reasons will be come back to in baker the next two ones are the um you know the real classic procedural rights and the first one I'm going to talk about, yeah, we're, well, I'll introduce it and then I'll finish it after the break. The first one we're going to talk about is Audi Altarum Partum. This technically means you know, hear the other side. And Audi Altarum Partum itself can be broken up into two components the right to know the case and a right to have the opportunity to meet the case, to know the case, and to have an opportunity to meet the case. Because in essence, how could a decision maker hear the other side if the other side doesn't know the case or have an opportunity to meet the case? It can't be heard if you don't have the opportunity to be heard. So, audiolterum partum further uh, splits up into a lot of specific rights. Indeed, you know, all these rights are actually under the umbrella of Audi alter and partum. The most simple right to be able to know the case and have a chance to meet it is notice that there's a decision to be made at all. and the most minimal ability to to meet the case is to provide some written submission but then the court may find in different circumstances more and more procedural rights are necessary to truly have let somebody know the case and meet it in a matter in a manner consistent with the sort of nature and importance of the decision and, and that idea of sliding up this scale to require more procedural rights, that's the essence of Baker. So that's what we're going to really learn about in our next class. So when you're thinking about Audi Ultra partum, you want to think that really all the stuff we learn about, you know, cross-examining, oral submissions, these, these sorts of things that you might be asking for or seeking, you know, your exam might very well say your client's unhappy that they didn't have a chance to make oral representations. Um, what would you do about it? You want to remember that all those concepts fall under this bigger umbrella of Audi Alterum Partum. And if you're not dealing with whether or not reasons should be provided, question of delay, and this question of Nemo Judix, which is about bias, so I'll get there in one second, you're within the umbrella of Audi Alterum Partum. So it's a, I don't love that there's this Latin phrase that I think is not really conducive to accessibility. But to think, to hear the other side, to know the case, to have a chance to meet it, you know that's really the, the essence of Audi and Partum. And it's easily said, but it breaks up into a lot of fairly complex ideas. Are there any questions on that? All right, let's take the break now and come back at 1130. so we're getting into the question of sources of procedural fairness and we're going to be looking at statutes and in particular we're going to look at the canada energy regulator act just as an example of a statutory framework that gets very convoluted very quickly so when you were thinking about where I might look to find what procedural rights my client is entitled to, you have to start with the statutes. First place to look is the statutes. So you'll know your uh, the tribunal that's at issue. You know you'll you'll you should at least have a general idea of that. That's that is the first step to identify the proper tribunal. But let's say you've got that figured out. I know I'm going to the Canada Energy Regulator for whatever reason. But what rights can my client demand there? And you're going to have to start with statutes. Then you're going to go through regulations, soft law, and common law. We'll get to those concepts in a second. But the starting point is statutes, and the starting point is statutes for the very clear reason that the common law is just this, as I said at the outset, this presumption that the legislature intended the executive to act fairly, and fairly as the courts discern fairness. What can override the common law? A statute. So if a statute explicitly says something should be granted or should not be granted, that is going to be applied by the courts unless you could constitutionally challenge that statute itself. If the statute's constitutional, though, it's going to be given effect. I note there was a comment in the book about, well, maybe you could make an argument that that's not the case. I think that's not a likely argument to succeed, and I think the book does a good job of saying here's the argument, but the courts have not had much time for this. Uh, What you want to know is just if a statute says something, unless you could constitutionally challenge that statute, you know, on some basis that statute was unconstitutional, it's going to be applied. So when you're looking at what procedural rights are available, look to the statute to see what procedural rights the statute provides. So what you would do is you would go to the uh, website of the tribunal that you're looking at. It's a pretty good place to start. And oftentimes the website will have some nice ways to get through to the statutes. It can take a little poking around though. It can be a little tricky to, to find it. Um, you know, you, you go through here, you don't really see statutes. Um, but if you go to the About Us tab, then you, um, you can get over to this page About us. And if you go to About Us, you then see this down here, View Acts and Regulations. So there's this kind of a thing you're going to find on most of these websites. Then you go to that, Acts and Regulations, and then you see List of Acts and Regulations. Okay, good. Let's go to List of Acts and Regulations. Now, this is where it's a bit overwhelming for the Canada Energy Regulator. So you see, The Canada Energy Regulator Act, and you think, okay, that one's not a big surprise. Then you see National Energy Board Act is listed, but it says repealed. Come back to that. The interesting thing is some parts of the National Energy Board Act still apply. Uh, Then you go to the, you see the Canada Oil and Gas Operations Act, Canada Petroleum Resources Act, Oil and Gas Operations Act, Petroleum Resources Act. Then you see other acts, and it keeps going and going and going. Environmental Assessment Act. Impact Assessment Act, Northern Pipeline Act, Species at Risk Act. And you start realizing, holy crow, the statutory schemes that this regulator is going to apply is really broad. And you may find procedural protections specific to your particular case in any one of those acts. So I use this as an example because it's extreme. This is at the far end of complexity for how many statutes are going to come to bear. But the basic point to take away is you're going to have the enabling statute, the Canada Energy Regulator Act, the Residential Tenancy Act, the act that is just concerned with this tribunal or this agency the tribunal is a part of. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your your understanding of the statutory context ends there. And that's why I... I recommend going through this process with the tribunal website instead of just Googling Canada Energy Regulator Act, because you may not realize how many other statutes come to bear for a tribunal, and you hope the tribunal has something like this, and most of them do. Okay, so moving on through this, I'd pull up the Canada Energy Regulator Act, and it is huge. Um, It covers a whole bunch of things. This is about pipeline regulation, you know, most specifically other things too but pipeline regulation is a really big part of Canada Energy Regulator. And then when you go through the thing you start seeing other acts being incorporated into the work. So that this act sets up a body called the commission. The Canada Energy Regulator Act sets up the commission. But then you see under section 185 for example, you know, if the application for a certificate, certificate of public convenience and necessity that you need to operate a pipeline, relates to a designated project that is subject to the Impact Assessment Act, then you see the commission, that's the commission created under this act, um, their powers and duties and functions are to be exercised in accordance with the Impact Assessment Act. So the commission's powers now have incorporated this whole other giant piece of legislation. So if I can find a procedural right in the Impact Assessment Act, I bring it into the Canada Energy Regulator Act and I can rely on it. So it it gets very convoluted to go through a statutory scheme and to pick out every single thing that matters, uh, every act that that could be incorporated. I want to say though that um, this is the kind of thing that it's going to be tempting for you, especially when you have a client on a judicial review, who doesn't have a whole lot of money and seems really wrong done to sort of skimp on this preliminary exercise of understanding the full statutory scheme. Uh, I've been tempted by I've I've done that. I've I've not done a good enough job at the outset and missed something. It's um you know the the ultimate example of sort of a a false economy. Like you you're not saving money. You're not saving time in the long run. You may really screw something up. So, you take the time at the outset to familiarize yourself with the, with the legislative context. Um, so, where I'm getting at there is you have to find the legislation and you have to see if other pieces of legislation are incorporated. You may find within the statutes procedural rights are afforded. There is parts of the Canada Energy Regulator Act and part of the Impact Assessment Act that both directly deal with when hearings are necessary, when oral hearings are necessary. So if I have a question of, is an oral hearing necessary, there may be an explicit part of the Act that says an oral hearing is necessary, or the Commission shall not hold an oral hearing. That is a complete answer, you know what I mean? There's other places that we might find relevant procedural uh, uh, relevant things to the procedure that's going to be applied. So, we talked about statutes. There's also generally applicable statutes. These are going beyond the types of statutes that you might find even through clicking through um, the Canada Energy Regulator Act and the statutes that refer to it, and the statutes that are that are referenced by the tribunal. There are some statutes. The book talks about it too. That just apply generally. Now we're sort of fortunate in British Columbia, because we talked about the the thing that that fills the role of a generally applicable statute in British Columbia is that Administrative Tribunals Act, but. The key feature of the Administrative Tribunals Act, the ATA, is that idea that it only applies if the enabling statute of the tribunal specifically invokes it. So you're not going to have a hidden generally applicable statute in British Columbia that's going to affect your tribunal in the same way as you may elsewhere, Ontario, Alberta, their analogue to the Administrative Tribunals Act applies unless it's excluded. So then you have to look to that. I think that's right for both those provinces, actually, I'm going by memory. Uh, Certainly some provinces have that. It may not be Ontario and Alberta. So when you're in BC world, it's not that bad. Just look at the legislation. You may see a generally applicable statute invoked. If you see the ATA as referenced, you better look at it because it can be very specific procedural rights that are set out in that statute and you want to know that. When you're in the federal world though, when you're in federal court, doing a federal judicial review, you know, there is a generally applicable federal statute that can apply and affect procedural rights that are due and owing. And it's, it's a strange one. <clears throat> You probably have heard of it before, the Canadian Bill of Rights. This is a very rarely invoked statute post the Charter, right? Uh, The Charter is a constitutional document. The Canadian Bill of Rights is just ordinary legislation. It could be unmade by Parliament tomorrow, just as they could unmake any piece of legislation. But the Canadian Bill of Rights does have important um, procedural guarantees. So you know if you were to have a court a federal court or tribunal um, try to compel you to give evidence, you know you could you could refer to the Canadian Bill of Rights as an express provision that excludes that kind of process from your client. You know, it's it's a generally applicable statute that overlays every piece of federal legislation to the extent of a conflict. It's interpreted as superseding. And so it's an example of how complex getting through the statutory framework to understand what procedural rights might be guaranteed can be. Um, I don't want to go too much farther down this road because it's it can be a bit of a, of a rabbit hole, sort of. But the big key takeaways are the first place to look is the enabling statute. You want to look and see if there's other statutes that are referred to or relate to that enabling statute. You want to look for generally applicable statutes, and that's especially when you're practicing outside of British Columbia. In British Columbia, make sure you check and see if the ATA applies. Okay, so that's my pitch on statutes as sources of procedural rights. I want to move into the other other sources. So the next source of procedural rights can be regulations. Regulations are very much akin to statutes, except they are enacted by an executive actor the minister or someone like that as opposed to by parliament or the provincial legislatures the key 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 thing about regulations is like statutes they are binding so statutes and regulations are binding and we're going to see that in comparison to the soft law that we're going to talk about next so you want to have Statutes and regulations in one category in your mind, soft law in the other. But you want to make sure you are looking for both statutes and regulations because they're going to be separate and distinct. Regulations are going to be far more detailed, usually. There may be quite a few of them. And coming back to our Canada Energy Regulator example, um, we see uh, quite a bit. So when I go to the... um, regulations under the canada energy regulator act right off this link regulations under the canadian energy regulator act i'm going to see a ton of them but i want to actually point this out first regulations made under the national energy board act remain in force under this act so it tells me right here i have to consider both regulations made under the new act the canadian energy regulator act as well as the old national energy board act now, that's really important. It could be easy to miss. So I look under regulations under the Energy Regular Act, and I see the regulations in force. It's a lot. So these are all binding regulations that could affect the process and could affect the procedure your client's entitled to. Circumstances for excluding periods from time limits. If I want to make an argument that somebody has uh, been too slow in processing something and that their application must be denied, I'd have to look there. The big one, though, is the National Energy Board rules of practice and procedure. Now, if I had just found this independently of this sort of website, I might very well think, well, that's expired. That's the National Energy Board It's now the Canada Energy Regulator. This website tells me that, no, this is still applicable. If I go to it, it's huge. and gets into a whole lot of detail about filing, amending, you know, contents and form, production, public hearings, hearing order, written submissions, who can be an intervener. You know, it's like a rules of court. You get a long and detailed rules of procedure. So if I find a procedural right in there, I can demand it, it's binding on the tribunal, they can't depart from it. If there is a procedural right that's contemplated and not granted in that, if it says I can't cross-examine witnesses, it's gonna be the end of it, that's binding. Unless I could do a constitutional challenge to that, I am going to be stuck with that and not gonna get that procedural right I might want. Okay, does that make sense? Regulations. So, they're just like statutes in their bindingness, but you might find them elsewhere and they can be really long and detailed. All right. So, moving on through our thing, we've, we've talked about statutes, generally applicable statutes, and regulations. Now we're going to get into a tricky one soft law. Soft law means things that the tribunal puts out or may reasonably be expected to rely on, but which are not binding on the tribunal. And that is the big distinction between statutes and regulations and soft law. Binding, binding, not binding. Now, what types of things would be this non-binding guidance and you'll see in the canada energy regulator act you know you have a heading called guidance they provide guidance materials for varying audiences etc then you have this whole um, list of the various guides you can look at then if you come to uh, one of them is the filing manual the filing manual is really really long um there's a pdf version that i that is, I don't know if this is even going to load by the time our class is over. It's such a long um, manual, and it's so detailed as to what the expectations are for what's going to go into an application before the Canada Energy Regulator. And you can imagine that you were talking about building a pipeline. Like of course it's going to be a tremendously complex application, and you need guidance through that application process. So Canada Energy Regulator sets out a guideline, they enact it, they put it on their website. It's right next to regulations. Uh, It's, you know, you can get there from the same page. There's one that goes to regulation, one goes to guidance. Yeah, what's the pages on this? 344 pages, you know, it's big. So why would this not be binding? And this raises two of the trickiest concepts we're going to deal with. And I'm sorry to introduce these at, you know, last 20 minutes of class. And believe me, we will come back to these concepts. But these ideas of legitimate expectations and fettering get at what to do with this kind of soft law guidance that you get from a tribunal. So fundamentally, these sort of guidelines, what distinguishes them from a regulation or a statute, is their source. A the Statute is obviously passed by Parliament or, or the provincial legislature in exercise of its constitutional power. A regulation is passed by usually a minister, the governor and council by exercise of statutory authority. Statute says you can pass a regulation and there's processes that are expected for regulation published in the Canada Gazette, you know, other specific processes. A guideline comes from the tribunal itself. The chair of the tribunal, the members of the tribunal may say to themselves, efficient operation of this tribunal requires that we provide some guidance on our practice and procedure and tribunals oftentimes and i should have said this earlier so this is very important tribunals oftentimes are left significant discretion to create their own practices and procedures you're going to see the statutes and even the regulations answer some of the questions your client might have but a lot of the details on timing, mode of participation, these types of questions can be left entirely to the discretion of the tribunal. The legislation may require a, a, a hearing. It may not say if that hearing has got to be oral or can be virtual. It, doesn't, it may not say where that hearing is to take place. It may not say whether there is going to be accommodations made for First Nations to provide um, you know, oral evidence at these hearings. All those sorts of things may have to be worked out by the tribunal itself, and they may want to have some consistency and predictability in that, so they may issue guidelines. So guidelines are soft law in that they are not binding because court will find if you don't follow a guideline it doesn't necessarily cause you to lose jurisdiction so you want to think about this the legislature creates the the executive body the tribunal the legislature empowers somebody to make regulations you have this tribunal set up got its jurisdiction, can answer these sorts of questions. The tribunal itself decides to issue some guidelines. That doesn't constrain the jurisdiction it's been given. Still has the same jurisdiction, despite the guidelines. So not following a guideline doesn't give rise to the same inherent, fundamental, jurisdictional concern as acting outside a statute Are acting outside of regulation. So we're getting confusing. But let's see if we can stay with me. So Proposition 1, guidelines come from the tribunal themselves and are not binding in the sense that failure to follow a guideline doesn't necessarily mean you've stepped outside your jurisdiction. Now, what I'm getting at here, let's just land with an example. If I say the legislature directs that this tribunal may hold oral hearings, and that's all it says, and then the guideline says, we'll hold an oral hearing in these four circumstances and not in these four circumstances. What the legislature gave you the discretion, the jurisdiction, to hold an oral hearing or not, you've exercised that discretion in a way to get some predictability. If they hold an oral hearing, despite saying that they ordinarily wouldn't, does that cause them to lose jurisdiction? Is that outside what the legislature would have contemplated? Not really. I mean, not really, not at all. The legislature said, you can decide, they have some guidelines, but they decided to act contrary to the guidelines to provide more protection in one case. It's not going to cause a loss of jurisdiction. So guidelines not binding and violating them doesn't necessarily mean you've given the judiciary any basis to intervene on judicial review. So that's a really first point we need to get at. The second point, though, is it can be really unfair to not follow your own guidelines. And this is the doctrine of legitimate expectations. This is one of the more confusing topics we get to for a couple of reasons. One reason is it's both a freestanding doctrine that can be invoked and it's a factor that's considered in Baker. We'll talk about how it's both more next class. It's touched on in the book. Now I'm just leave aside the fact you're going to read about it in Baker. Just think of it as a freestanding doctrine. The doctrine of legitimate expectations and what that doctrine says is if a tribunal leads you to believe that a process is to be followed and does not follow that process that may be unfair Now, what's really key about this is, it's going to be a highly factual, context-specific question as to what you really reasonably understood. So, this filing manual may, for example, set out particular requirements to file something for a, um, you know, a, uh, a pipeline, and it, it may seem like this is going to be exclusive, and as long as you comply with this thing. They're going to consider your application. But what if the Chair of the Tribunal wrote you a letter and said, I know the filing manual doesn't say that you have to provide your um, framework as to how you'd comply with this piece of federal species at risk legislation, but I need that. I want you to do that despite it not being in the filing manual. Could you then when they deny your application as being insufficient for not having complied with that, go to court and say, I had a legitimate expectation if I complied with this thing, that my application would be accepted and processed. I mean, no, you couldn't. The tribunal was exceptionally clear to you that there was gonna be another requirement put upon you. And so you didn't really have a legitimate expectation that a guideline would be followed to a T. So this is the real key thing to get in your, you know, your, your framework here, is that these guidelines can be departed from on a case-by-case basis with adequate notice. So when you're thinking about What's going to be unfair, it's going to be when the tribunal reasonably made you think something was happening and then did something else. That's legitimate expectations. They reasonably made you think something was happening then did something else. Then at times the court will say, you didn't have to do this process but you made the person think that you're going to give this process and in the context it was not fair to not then give them that process that doesn't mean you couldn't put up on your website tomorrow we're not doing this process anymore that's within your power but in this circumstance it's unfair to deny this applicant that process that makes sense Okay there's one other wrinkle to legitimate expectations that is I mean, it's a confusing area and then fettering is just as confusing unfortunately Legitimate expectations has two branches and this, this stay with me on this one cuz this people get confused in this every year procedural legitimate expectations and substantive legitimate expectations They are what you think they are. A procedural legitimate expectation is when the tribunal makes you think a particular procedure will be ordered, or or, sorry, will be followed. And a substantive legitimate expectation is when the tribunal makes you reasonably believe a particular outcome is going to happen. It's a violation of a procedural legitimate expectation to not follow that procedure. It can be a violation of a substantive legitimate expectation. This is where it gets confusing. This is it right here. Maybe a violation of a substantive legitimate expectation to not give that substantive outcome and not give the party notice of that change and an opportunity to address the reasons for that change. So what I'm getting at here is with the substantive legitimate expectations, you don't have a right to that substantive outcome. But if somebody promises you a substantive outcome, you may have really elevated procedural rights that they have to follow before they can change that outcome. So if they say to you, you're going to get this building permit next week, plan yourself accordingly. All right, that's great. The next week they come out and say, no building permit for you. You had a substantive, legitimate expectation this was going to happen. Then it was ripped out from underneath you. What the courts will say is if you're going to get somebody uh, to believe something's going to happen, and then you are going to rip it out from underneath them, you may have a duty before you do that to go to them and give them a chance to change your mind, to let them understand what changed, and to give them a chance to address that change of circumstances. So this is the absolutely crucial, bolded in your notes, legitimate expect procedural legitimate expectations and substantive legitimate expectations both only lead to procedural remedies. You're not going to get a court ordering the tribunal to give you that substantive outcome you had been led to believe was going to happen, but the court may order you get more process to address this change in circumstances, to maybe change their mind to get that permit. Okay, that's a tricky concept and we'll come back to it, but that's the broad framework of legitimate expectations. And so you can imagine how with guidelines, when a tribunal issues guidelines as to the procedure that's gonna be followed, it could be quite easy to raise legitimate expectations argument if you're not given that same procedure as long as the tribunal was not clear in advance that that was not being given to you for whatever reason. That's where it really matters, but the rest of the concept stuff is important too. Okay, so the last concept to raise, and this is almost cruel to raise it at 1215, is fettering. Fettering fettering of discretion or fettering of authority, fettering of statutory power. This is a concept that also can resonate with respect to these sort of soft law guidance instruments. I'll try to explain it in the simplest terms and then we're all gonna get confused again, but hopefully uh, a simple start can give us a basis to jump back into it a little bit later. So fettering is the idea that the legislature chose to give a tribunal a scope of power and discretion. They have this boundary of their powers set by statute. Fettering is the idea that the tribunal can't tie its own hands and thereby refuse to exercise the full scope of the discretion the statute gave it. So you can imagine any number of tribunals are given an important job, an important power, and some flexibility in what circumstances they're gonna exercise that power in relation to. But let's say that a tribunal, let's say the law society tribunal, decided that they were going to get a lot of consistency in their their, um, decisions. And they were going to say, okay, we are tasked with regulating the conduct of lawyers. We are going to list the 10 circumstances that can lead to disbarment. And only these 10 circumstances can lead to disbarment. Well, this could be met with a fettering argument. Because you could say you have the jurisdiction to regulate broadly in the public interest and to protect the public as against bad actions by lawyers. To discharge that mandate, consistent with how the legislature told you to, you know, what they gave you, you have to keep an open mind as to any circumstance that could lead to public loss of trust in the legal system as a whole if somebody was allowed to continue practice. Just recently, we've seen this case, I'm sure you've seen it about this lawyer who has you know, basically been embracing sort of Freeman on the land pseudo-law tactics uh, in a fight against a neighbor. And you know she's gonna be suspended from practice. She hasn't already, and I suspect this part. And that might not fit neatly into anything you'd foresee as one of the bases to disbar somebody. So if you were to issue a guideline and say, I'm only going to disbar people for these 10 circumstances, nothing else, you have fettered your power. You've unreasonably restricted what you're going to consider, what you might do with the jurisdiction that you've been entrusted with in a way that's contrary to the legislature's wishes. So I just raised that as one example of what fettering might look like. It gets tricky. I have a hard time with fettering arguments to this day. They're hard to make. Um, But if you get that basic idea, and the basic idea is the legislature gave you some discretion. You were supposed to exercise the totality of that discretion But you instead boxed yourself in and said, I'm not really gonna exercise it over here. That's a problem because you're not acting consistently with the legislature's intention. Any questions on that? Like I'm sure we will have questions on that, but maybe it's best to let it sink in and then we can come back to it. So I was hoping to introduce Baker. I will just say at the outs or very quickly in closing. Baker is one of the two most important cases that we read in admin law, and I would say it's probably one of the top 10 most important Supreme Court of Canada cases last 30 years, if not all time. Hugely influential, highly cited case. We'll spend a lot of time on it. You've already been introduced it through the reading, and now you get a chance to read highlights of it. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about it next next class. But Baker, you will write Baker on your exam. So it's important to, to uh, read the case carefully. All right, thanks so much.